0: American Stories. And from time to time, we like to take a deep dive on a book. We've done it with Amity Schlaes and Forgotten Man. We did it with David McCulloch, and we did it with The Wright Brothers Story. My favorite of his, believe it or not, and he's written so many great books on the greatest Americans in history. And another favorite of ours, and one of our favorite writers, by the way, too. It's just a great read every time in the Wall Street Journal, reading about people talking about their cars. Famous people, not so famous people. It's A.J. Baim, and he writes regularly about cars for The Wall Street Journal. But he's also author of The Arsenal of Democracy, FDR, Detroit, and an epic quest to arm America at war. And we love to tell great American stories about the impact businesses have had on this country, uh, on the employment level, on the growth of this country, the American dream. But, boy, the impact that a person like Ford had in our ability to fight and repel the Nazi menace is, I think, underreported. And, A.J., thanks so much for joining us.
1: I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you very much.
0: You bet. So let's start off in the 1930s, if we could. What was going on at this time? The Nazis were up to no good. They were, they were building up a huge military, uh, while we have one smaller than Belgium. Talk about that.
1: <laughs> well, it's fascinating. I mean... Uh, I think a lot of people today look back on World War II and think, well, Hitler was evil and uh, we beat up on the Nazis and that was it. It was very complicated and started in the 1930s during the Great Depression Uh, due to neutrality acts and lack of funds and lack of resources in the United States. Our military really went to pot. Um, We had an army that ranked 16th in the world in size with fewer than 200,000 men uh, when World War II started in Europe. Uh, compared to 7 million Nazi soldiers. We had no legitimate mu- munitions industry in this country. Um, the Army Air Corps had fewer than 1,300 combat planes. Most of them were technologically obsolete. We were completely com- uh, unprepared for war, whereas Hitler had been planning for years and had built up this massive military industry in force. Uh, and that was the very basics of the picture when Germany invaded Poland on September 1, 1939.
0: And, A.J., a lot of it has to do with, I think, two things, probably. World War I, I think we were exhausted. Foreign entanglements may not have been our bag. And then the Great Depression, and you add those two things together, and that might explain the nature and, and, and size and inconsequential nature of our of our military.
1: Absolutely. Also, just the fact that after World War One, you know, it's hard for people to fathom today with modern communications and everything and radio, you know, uh, just Just the idea after World War One that the United States we had this giant moat around us. we had the Atlantic on one side and the Pacific on one side, and after World War One, our leaders were thinking that we really didn 't need to be involved in foreign wars um, through the 1920s and 30s Things really changed politically economically as populations grew and and technology grew. Countries became linked together in ways that were not anticipated earlier by our political leaders. So after World War One, it was not so hard for politicians to sign neutrality acts, saying, "We are not going to go to war in other countries." Um, they didn't anticipate something like Hitler coming along. Well,
0: and what happened in Europe stays in Europe. Well, that just wasn't as much the case, uh, I guess, is your basic proposition, AJ.
1: Exactly. And w- and one of the things I, I write about quite a bit in the arsenal of democracy is the whole the fact that the bomber aircraft was really a game changing weapon because here was a weapon that could take off from an aircraft carrier somewhere far away fly 1500 miles and drop bombs on on civilian populations uh, of course, the airplane existed during World War I, but nothing like the modern aircraft that really revolutionized warfare. So at the end of the 1930s, when the war began in Europe, Hitler had all these amazing bombers. He had built the Luftwaffe, the first modern air force. We had nothing like it.
0: It's so true. And by the way, let's not forget, even as we approached World War II, there were really, really strong poles to isolationism. I mean, you had some of our most famous politicians and political figures, and, and frankly, some of our most famous... Aviators, uh, we can name one Lindbergh, who just thought this is a waste of time.
1: Absolutely, the two biggest anti-war activists in 1940. Well, just to address your point, of course, the great debate of the nation in 1940 was about isolationism versus interventionism. Should we be a part of this war going on in Europe? What the Hitlers were, what Hitler and the Nazis were doing, was obviously terrifically unjust. Uh, they were when they, you know, they attacked London. They were killing civilians. They were rounding up Jews, although most people didn't realize that early on. Um, what what should be our role? There were a lot of very powerful figures in America who said that we should have nothing to do with this. And two of the most powerful, high-profile anti-war activists in 1940, leading right up to Pearl Harbor, were Henry Ford, who came to play a major role in World War II, as we will soon find out, and Charles Lindbergh. It's amazing to think that, you know, at the beginning of the war, we were desperate for aircraft engineers, desperate for airplanes and pilots because the aircraft was going to be the revolutionary weapon in the war. And Hitler because I mean, and uh, Lindbergh, because he was an anti-war activist, he couldn't get he couldn't get a job in the army. He was not allowed to fly.
0: Fascinating. And by the way, the more things change, the more they stay the same, A.J. Isolationism versus interventionism. You think we're still talking about that and grappling with that? I think that's one of the more fundamental discussions we're battling with here on the foreign policy uh, front in America, and I don't know that there are clear answers. I think there were clearer answers then, though. AJ,
1: I think World War II was the end of the era when clear answers would present themselves.
0: I think that's so true. And when we come back, we're going to deep in, we're going to deep dive and take a deep dive into AJ Bame's book, "The Arsenal of Democracy: FDR, Detroit, and an Epic Quest to Arm America at War." And when you get a chance, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Go to Topics, and under Topics are This Day in History now has about 125 stories. One of them is the life of Henry Ford. We touch a little on this interventionism and non-intervention argument in Ford's life, but what we really drive, drive down on is what Ford did and how he helped create an industrial America. He and Rockefeller... And some of these other robber barons who've been reviled and perhaps properly so on some in some dimensions, but in others perhaps not. When we come back, more with A. J. Bame and his great book. After these messages. <laughs> Our American Stories. We continue our conversation with A.J. Bain, author of The Arsenal of Democracy, FDR, Detroit, and an epic quest to arm America at war. And go to Amazon and get this book. It came out in 2014, but you know what? Buy it. Um, an older book is a newer book if you haven't read it. And we love drilling down on some of these books and stories that intersect with some of the things we talk about here on Our American Story. A.J., what was the automobile industry doing in the 1930s, both in the United States and and equally important in Europe?
1: Okay, very complicated. Let me see if I can boil it down um, to just a few points here. For starters, the Great Depression, people were buying cars like wildfire in the 1920s. The Great Depression comes and people stopped buying cars, Um, and, and the automobile industry really suffered. So that's point number one. Point number two, in 1935, Roosevelt um, signed into law an act which enabled legally workers to unionize for the first time. And this was really a game-changing thing in the automobile industry. Suddenly, it put a lot of power into the hands of workers that they didn't have before and really pit workers against the companies they worked for. Now, General Motors and Chrysler, two of the big three, signed very important deals with the unions in 1937, 1938. Henry Ford refused to do so. So um, the Ford Motor Company at this time became a real hotbed of potential violence and eventually violence because there was so much stress in the power struggle between the unions and Ford and the men that ran the company. Now, in Europe, in Germany specifically, Germany had the only economy in the world at the time that, that, that had a labor shortage. German, the German economy, the Nazi economy in the late 1930s was booming. People didn't realize at the time why. The reason why was because Hitler was building this extraordinary military power. Um, the American companies, the automobile industries had uh, big investments inside Nazi Germany that they could not afford to lose during the Great Depression. It was the only place where they were really making a lot of profits. But this put uh, the automobile companies in a very delicate position in terms of their relationship to the Nazi empire.
0: That's a real jam they're in, A.J. Oh, yeah, and, real jam. And not one that, that, that they could have foreseen. And so often, many of the jams we enter into our lives, we didn't know we were about to enter. They, they just sort of happen. And uh, let's talk about the importance, uh, before we get po- go forward, let's talk about the importance of Henry Ford's innovation in mass production and the ability to lower the price of cars, move out the number of cars made with greater speed and rapidity. I think it has great consequence for what happens next. Talk about that.
1: Absolutely. Well, you know, Henry Ford, people talk about the Model T as being his, you know, his masterpiece, but his masterpiece was really not the car. It was the factory that could produce it. He had this wild imagination that enabled him, and it wasn't all him, of course. There were, there were people who worked with him who were extremely important early on, like William Knudsen and Charlie Sorensen, these great two Danes, by the way, these great production engineers, and all these minds together dreamed up these massive factories with integrated mass production that enabled them to produce a lot of cars, very cheaply and enabled Americans and people all over the world to buy cars. So the automobile revolutionized human life and the human economies.
0: Your book Uh. is your book is titled The Arsenal of Democracy, which, of course, was the title of FDR's famous fireside chat. Let's listen to this clip and then I'll ask you a quick question.
2: Guns, planes, ships and many other things have to be built in the factories and the arsenals of America. They have to be produced by workers and managers and engineers with the aid of machines, which in turn have to be built by hundreds of thousands of workers throughout the land. We must be the great arsenal of democracy.
0: Talk about the importance, A.J., of that spe- speech, both at home and abroad, because the Nazis were listening to this speech, too.
1: Just to listen to FTR's voice, so moving. Every time I hear that, right now, even as I speak, I have goosebumps all over my arms. It was so moving. Now, the point, in the Arsenal of Democracy, the book I wrote, there's two narratives happening at the same time. One is FDR realizes before everybody else that America is going to get stuck in this war. And before everybody else, he envisions a way that the war will be fought and won. It was going to be a contest of mass production. And so as you heard in this, uh, what he was just saying is we need to build guns, ships, airplanes, jeeps, tents, field kitchen, underwear. We need to sew underwear. We need to have farmers grow food. All of that has to happen with more speed and more volume than had ever happened before in the history of the world. What? That's what FDR yep. is saying. Now the the um, the automobile industry becomes involved because there was no industry on earth with greater mass production expertise than the automobile industry. So um, that's, that's uh, how the automobile industry came to play a starring role. Now you asked about Europe. Yes, indeed. The, the, uh, The Nazis were listening in, and I write about this in my book of what the Nazis thought when they heard that speech, and they just didn't believe that America could do what had to be done to defeat the Nazis. They didn't believe it could happen.
0: Yeah, there's a quote in your book in which you uh, sort of pointed out that even Joseph Goebbels listened to the speech and said this, What can the USA do faced with our arms capacity? They will never be able to produce as much as we, we who have the entire economic capacity of Europe. At our disposal, disposal, uh, a, a slight underestimation on Goebbels' part.
1: Absolutely, and why did he have the complete, you know, capacity of Europe? Because the Nazis had conquered most of Europe by the time FDR had given this speech. Um, it's amazing to think about. But the Nazis too, they understood that this war was going to be fought not just with you know infantrymen and lines on battlefields; it was going to be fought in factories at home. So,
0: how does FDR drag? henry ford into this war effort it's quite a story talk about that if you could aj
1: it's amazing to think that henry ford at the time he's one of the most outspoken anti-war activists he's a great enemy a personal enemy of roosevelt he hated roosevelt Um, and it's very complicated how he became involved two things happen one is fdr called the president of general motors william newtson and asked Newtson, who was who had the largest salary of any man working outside of Hollywood in the country, to come down to Washington and work for the government for one dollar a year. And Newtson left his job as the president of General Motors to take this job at one buck a year to help America prepare for war. And Newtson was key because he he was really the one who got the automobile industry on board. Right. Um, the other thing that happened was. Pearl Harbor happened and uh, you know once Pearl Harbor, Harbor happened it really ignited the patriotism in, even in anti-war activists like Henry Ford the third thing is Henry Ford's son Edsel who plays a very important part in my book The Arsenal of Democracy he was a fan of Roosevelt's, and Ed, uh, Edsel had quite a bit to do with getting his father and getting Ford Motor Company involved in the war. And everything that happens after that is really fascinating. That's really the guts of what this book is about.
0: Yeah, we're going to dig into that in the next segment, AJ. Uh, just a bit here. How did Henry Ford build his first automobile? Let's go back again before we go forward, because there's a tremendous backstory here about this guy who grows up in a Detroit, in, in a Michigan farm. And ends up giving us this freedom that we all enjoy today—the affordable car.
1: It started with a, a, a gadget. He was playing around in his um, in a shed behind his house. He was uh, living in Detroit in an apartment with his wife and his only child, Edsel. He had very little money. Edsel was a baby. Um, and uh, he was just building this sort of invention in the back, in this shed. Now, the car, the motor car existed. Carl Benz had built one, you know, some 15 years earlier. But there was no, and there was an automobile industry at the time, but it was very small. And there was no brands that were nationally known. It was just a bunch of tinkerers. Um, Henry Ford built this this vehicle in a shed, and he drove it through Detroit. And uh, the car was really spread its own gospel. It was its own PR machine. People saw it and thought to themselves, wow, look at that thing. And he was able to begin to open a factory and begin building these things successfully, which is a very difficult thing to do. Hundreds of automobile companies existed, and 95% of them probably went out of business. Um, His genius was building factories that could spit these things out cheaply on volume.
0: And it had to do in the end with efficiencies of scale, and operational talents that others hadn't possessed. A quote from the book, his company summed up the philosophy of Ford, quote, I will build a motor car for the great multitude. It will be so low in price that no man making a good salary will be unable to own one. When we come back, we're going to dive into the relationship between Henry Ford and his son Edsel because it is the central part of this narrative and it is why in the end Henry Ford enters the war and helps power the arsenal democracy. This is Lee Habib, and we're talking about a great book, and it's by a Wall Street Journal writer A.J. Bame, The Arsenal Democracy, FDR, Detroit, and an Epic Quest to Arm America at War. More after these messages. And we continue our conversation with A.J. Bain, author of The Arsenal of Democracy, FDR, Detroit, and an epic quest to arm America at war. And we periodically take some deep dives into our favorite books. Uh, This is the fourth, by the way, not fifth, but the second from a Wall Street Journal writer. We did uh, a terrific uh, dive on the foolproof, uh, terrific book by Greg Ipp, who is the economics editor of the Wall Street Journal. We left off things with uh, you talking to us about Henry Ford and and Edsel and how Edsel played a key part in bringing the father closer to the war effort and to FDR. And by the way, as we know, Henry Ford had no love of FDR. Talk about that.
1: Well, excellent. Edsel Ford... um Was this amazingly, is this amazingly misunderstood character? Um, And just diving into his history really quickly, here's a kid who grew up with thinking of his father as a backyard tinkerer who had no money. You know, his father was very eccentric, people thought he was strange, the family had no money. By the time Edsel's a teenager, his father is probably the richest, most famous man in the world. Now, think about that. it happened very quickly. Now, Edsel uh, had had big dreams for himself, and he thought, as a young man, a teen teenager, just a few years after um, the Wright brothers first flew their you know their first airplane, that Edsel could do with the airplane industry, for the airplane industry what his dad did for cars. So he thought of himself as this budding aviation engineer. And indeed, with his father's permission, the two of them together launched a Ford Aircraft Company. And for a short time, due to Edsel. Ford was the biggest airplane manufacturer in the country in the 1920s. Now, two things happened to Edsel. I'm trying to, I'm trying to sum this up very quickly. Um, one is his father was an anti-war activist and refused to allow Edsel to serve in World War I. And Edsel was brutally maligned in the newspapers. I mean, think about it. Here you have this famous man's son who's not allowed to serve in the war while all these other sons in, uh, are heading off to battle and dying in the trenches. And Edsel's at home safely. He was brutalized in the press at a very tender age, a late teenager, early 20s, and it really affected his life. Um, uh, The Great Depression destroyed the aviation uh, uh, industry, so he lost his dreams of the future, so he wanted to be an aviation guy. It didn't work out. And he, didn't, he really had a hard time living up to his father's expectations, and he became a very depressed man. He was the president of Ford Motor Company for, for more than half of his life, um, but he, he lived in the shadow of his famous father. And when the war came, Edsel saw, saw the war as a last-ditch effort to, to um, become a man. He was dying of cancer when the war began. And uh he, he threw his company in into the war effort thinking this was his last shot at you know, at dignity and integrity in the public eye. And he died before the war was over. Um but the war was his his uh his his uh I guess his his defining thing you know in the end when he died
0: yeah that had to be his defining moment in his life uh, aj what's interesting also is the dynamic between this father and son i mean edsel wanted to unionize it was henry that didn't edsel wanted to support the war effort henry didn't edsel wanted to bring in college educated executives and corporate flowcharts; henry didn't edsel wanted trained accountants his dad believed well not in accountancy that's for sure edsel liked to smoke drink and socialize Henry was a, well, you know, let's just say not exactly the most exciting guy at a party. Uh, so these <laughs> guys, they had real differences, and yet there was a love between them at the same time that there was this war between them.
1: That's exactly right, and that's what makes the relationship to- so touching because, as I say in the book, you know, these were a father, this was a father and a son who loved each other desperately. I have a son. I, you know, many of your listeners do. Uh, there's a, it's a very special bond that's not like anything else. But like many in Fathers and Sons, Edsel and uh, Henry, they really clashed. And th- their clash was very much a clash be- between modernity and the way things used to be. Um, there was a generation gap there that, that was very hard for, for, the, for the two of them to see to the other side.
0: You write in the book, if ever there was a way for Edsel to live up to his father's legacy and expectations, the airplane was it. And FDR had just asked for 50,000 airplanes in May of 1940. Talk about how Edsel was so critical in the development of this movement into aviation. Let's get into maybe one specific story, if we could, A.J., because that's first of all, it's a staggering number for a president to ask an American manufacturer to come up with whole cloth.
1: Absolutely. The bomber. The four-engine bomber, FDR was convinced, was going to be the key weapon. So what Edsel did was he, get, he got his chief engineer, Charlie Sorensen, cast-iron Charlie, they call them, and they flew out together to San Diego to take a look at this new airplane called the B-24 Liberator. The company was called Consolidated. Consolidated had no ability to mass-produce this airplane, which was the biggest, most destructive airplane in our arsenal. We just had a few of them. And nobody knew how to build them on mass. So Edsel and Charlie Sorensen, they came up with this idea to build the biggest factory in the world, the biggest airplane factory in the world, the biggest factory under one roof of any kind in the world, and try to build the biggest airplane in our arsenal at a rate of one per hour. This had never been done and certainly not by a company that did not build airplanes. Ford was a car manufacturer. Everybody said it couldn't be done. And Edsel set off on this industrial adventure while dying of cancer, and he passed away before he ever knew whether his dream of building this Liberator at one per hour would succeed.
0: Yeah, that was one of the ironies and the tragedies of the story, A.J., is he didn't get to see what happened. And by the way, just so people know, the B-24 Liberator, the plane was 66 feet, 4 inches long, 17 feet, 11 inches tall, at a 110-foot wingspan. It was the widest in America. Total takeoff weight was 60,000 pounds. It could travel at 300 miles an hour for over 3,000 miles, further than any American plane with the equivalent horsepower, A.J., of 56 Ford V8 cars, and it could carry 8,000 pounds of bombs. So this was a plane that was a difference maker. Um, Talk about the Liberator and the importance to the war effort.
1: Well, some people uh, today might be familiar with the Liberator from the book Unbroken, Lauren Hillenbrand's uh, amazing bestseller in the movie. Um, There's a B-24 featured in that film. Um, But, you know, at the time, at the end of the 1930s into the early 40s, it was the biggest, most destructive airplane in our arsenal. And the Ford set out to make it the most mass-produced military aircraft in, in the history of the world. It was a game-changer. It wasn't a very friendly uh, airplane. It was very difficult to fly. Um, and uh, it was it was mass-produced at such a rate that it, there was a lot of glitches, and things didn't go well in these airplanes. But um, until the B-29 came around, which really happened in, at the end of 1944 into 1945, this was our most destructive bomber. And uh, the Ford succeeded. So still today, still to this day, the B-24 Liberator is the most mass-produced military aircraft in this country of all time.
0: It's really something. And, you know, one of the things I'd recently done was taken my family to the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. And I think one of the other great innovations was the Higgins boat. And, uh, and Higgins, what he created, Eisenhower had actually told Stephen Ambrose that Higgins was one of the most important, unheard-of men in the war that most Americans didn't know. And it was for the same reason, innovation and the capacity to just push out thousands of these fast, A.J., and it was the speed and the volume. It must have shocked the Nazis, actually.
1: Absolutely. The the, the Higgins boat is a fascinating story. It really is. Um, And I saw the, I assume you saw the Arsenal of Democracy exhibit at the World War II Museum, which was up, and I I spoke, uh, I gave a speech there. I don't know if you saw that one, but what a wonderful museum. And the Higgins boat story is amazing. And I think I mentioned it in in the book but it was this whole idea like FDR said every man woman and child is a part of the greatest undertaking in our American history there's no
0: doubt and folks if you get a chance New Orleans is worth visiting anyway for the food and the music For the National World War II Museum it is my favorite museum in the world and I I love museums there's nothing like it and they have exhibits there that will make you cry it'll, it'll make you learn about what remarkable things that generation did And not just what the generals and the soldiers did, but what some of the business people did. And they they often get overlooked. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Story. The Story is our final segment of the hour. We're talking to A.J. Baim, author of The Arsenal of Democracy, FDR, Detroit, and an epic quest to arm America at war. And let's talk about that liberator because it required all kinds of innovative firsts on a bigger scale, A.J., than anything ever done before. How did the Fords pull this one off?
1: Nobody said it could be done. They were going to build this 60,000-pound airplane at one an hour. And I, I dig very deep in this book about how they did that. They, the factory they built, called Willow Run, the biggest airplane factory in the world. They had, you know, the whole idea that made Ford famous to begin with was these amazing Rube Goldberg factories that had all of these different machines never dreamed up that could take molten metal and, you know, raw ingredients like cotton and rubber and turn them into these vehicles. They just did that again, but on a grand scale never before imagined.
0: You know, it, it, the numbers are startling, A.J. 80,000 workers at Willow Run created 8,685 liberators. And this, this plant was so efficient that it, for the taxpayers of this country and for the soldiers, because in the end, wars are about resources, the cost dropped from $238,000 a plane to $137,000 a plane. So talk about some of those things. And also talk about Rosie the Riveter uh, and, and the role that women played in this effort.
1: For starters, I think it's important to point out that during 1941 and 1942, a lot of this section of World War II people don't know about the fact that everything went wrong before it went right. They dreamed up these great factories, and you know the ambition was staggering, but um, – at Willow Run, Ford trying to build this airplane, it really was a disaster throughout 1942. Nothing went right, and the, proto- the numbers that the Ford said they could build, they did not. It was a disaster, and everybody was very upset. Um, but in the end, they were able to figure out all of the problems and solve them. One of them was they couldn't find workers to get to, these, to this giant factory, and people who worked at the factory had to live in shantytowns all around it. There's shantytowns built all over around this factory. Because of rationing, people were not allowed to drive. They didn't have tires. They didn't have gas. Because of the rate that the military was bringing young men into the, uh, into, you know, into the military, into the battlefields overseas, they had no workers. They couldn't find enough people. They literally, Ford sent buses through the Deep South, recruiting people in the deep south who didn't even own shoes and bringing them to detroit to work in this factory i mean it's just staggering to me what happened
0: well a third of the assembly line workers were female aj you point out in your book and ford actually recruited workers from egypt iceland new zealand turkey and cuba i mean this was an all-out international effort wasn't it
1: it wasn't just that they 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 recruited um you know People who were in wheelchairs, people who didn't have legs, people who were epileptics, they found people to fill roles. They even had um, uh, uh, – I don't know what the political correct word is um, – little people, dwarves that they found and set them to work uh, so they could climb inside airplanes and inside tiny holes where other people couldn't fit. To, rivet, to to put rivets in, inside wings and things like that. Now, women on the assembly line was obviously an extremely important thing. This had never happened. It really changed the face of the American workforce. And um, Rosie the Riveter became the symbol of the female in the workforce on the assembly line. And the, one of the original Rosies was a woman named Rosie who worked at the Ford's factory at Willow Run um, putting rivets in B-24 Liberator bombers. That actually happened.
0: Yep, and the Ford Motor Company, by the way, fronted the money to build Willow Run months before the government contract was even signed. That doesn't happen too often, does it, AJ?
1: Well, it, it's a, it's a symbol of what what patriotism this country had in its bones in the days before and after Will, uh, Pearl Harbor. It was a different uh, country that uh, the United States was a very different place.
0: Yeah, we did a, we did an hour on Jimmy Stewart. And here is Stewart having just won an Oscar, and he, he tries to get into the Air Force. In 1940, A.J., he knows what's coming. He's done a tour in Europe as an actor, and he can sense it. And he wants to fight because, as he said, Stewart's had been fighting in American wars for a very long time. They denied him. He, they told him he was too skinny and too tall. And so he put on weight, and thank goodness for the B-24 because it allowed him to fly because height wasn't a requirement. And he, he fought as many missions as any man could. They wanted to put him on photo ops. They wanted to just tell him to do a tour and raise bond money. And he said, no, I'm fighting. It was a very different time, A.J. A, gr-
1: he, a true American hero, Jimmy Stewart. And again, somebody who, who flew a B-24 Liberator. And anybody who flew, this is from my interviews of, of crew members on the B-24s during World War II, they all said to me there were so many Ford built because Ford wasn't the only company that built the Liberator. But there were so many Ford built Liberators that anybody flew in any of these planes eventually flew a, a Liberator bomber built by Ford.
0: You bet. As the Ford company is nearing peak production, the allies are preparing for D-Day. But there's also a battle brewing at Ford Motor Company, too. Tell us what's going on back home at this time and the story of how Henry Ford II becomes president of Ford Motor Company.
1: Uh, After Edsel Ford dies, Henry Ford's only legitimate child that we are sure existed. Edsel dies in 1943, and the company is... uh, It's hard to explain in in, in a short space here, but the the company was this massive empire, massive American empire, that was amidst this power struggle between good and evil. Uh, there was a, a man named Harry Bennett, who was a gangster who had all but taken over Ford Motor Company, and he was Henry Ford's closest ally. Henry Ford is beginning to go senile at this point, and Harry Bennett, this gangster, literally a gangster, is about to take control of the third largest military contract contractor in the country, and. Um, Edsel Ford dies, and his his oldest son Henry Ford II has to leave the Navy and come back and try to wrestle the company away from this dark these dark forces. And it sounds like a Star Wars movie or a Shakespeare, but that's really what happened. And in the end, the climactic battle over the Empire of Ford Motor Company happened at the same time as the end the climactic moments of World War II. And uh, as we know, Henry Ford II did take back. Uh, the the ford empire how he did that is fascinating and henry ford ii came to lead ford motor company for the next 30
3: years
0: indeed and you know what what of all these stories aj surprised you the most you know when you're doing a book like this i can only imagine you're living with the fords for a very long time and that's an and anyone in your family is going enough about the fords you know get a hotel room we can't take it aj (laughs) Uh, so to talk about as you're digging and you're digging and you're thinking I you know, you must always be gold mining. You must always be looking for that story that'll surprise you and your readers. What was the big nugget? What was the thing that you went, "Ah, I didn't know this" or "what I thought I knew, it's so much more interesting."
1: Let me t- let me answer that question this way. In in the book I I dig very deeply into the very controversial issues of what the Detroit Motor Companies were doing with their fact- factories inside Nazi Germany, and what the you know the executives' relationships were with these these factories inside Nazi Germany, and it's very delicate, controversial material. I was able to find all sorts of fascinating stuff. How the Fords were raided by, you know, government agents trying to figure out if the Fords were Nazi sympathizers. Um, And how these, you know, government agents came swooping through Dearborn and taking all these documents, trying to find out, investigating the Fords to see if they were Nazi, you know, sympathizers, because they had these factories inside Nazi Germany, very complicated material. And I'm very, I handle it very carefully, obviously, in the book. And I was worried what the Ford family would say. Because, you know, I'm not making this up. This is the real stuff that happened, yep. and I do not paint the Fords in the end as Nazi sympathizers. In the end, Edsel Ford II, who's the great-great-grandson of Henry Ford, called me on the phone after the book was published, and I thought I was doomed. I thought this guy <laughs> was really going to go at me. You know, yep. uh, He asked me to sign copies of the book for his children, including Henry Ford III, and that was probably the most moving moment for me throughout this whole you know epic of and life, that had I? to
0: be because you had to tell the truth but for folks who dared to read the whole book they're going to know that the truth is murky and again folks who got into business in Germany could not have known or predicted and I think most of Europe could not have known and predicted until the mid 30s what exactly was going to happen with this maniac uh, I
1: agree And it's important to realize, you know, this maniac came in. There was a labor shortage in Germany. People were unsure of what was going to happen, but they knew one thing. Germany was the only place that had a thriving economy, you know, in the late 1930s in the Depression. And they had Hitler to thank for that.
0: You bet. And as, as McCulloch told us, nothing had to happen the way it happened. And men living in history especially had no idea what was going to happen. And don't ever forget that when reading history and, of course, always Keep the context, the historical context in mind. A.J., thanks so much for joining us. This was a terrific hour.
1: I thank you so much, and thank you for quoting McCullough, because he's a genius.
0: You bet. Well, I thank you, and we agree. And uh, this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. For the hour, we've been talking to A.J. Baim, author of The Arsenal of Democracy, FDR, Detroit, and an Epic Quest to Arm America at War, And when you get a chance, whatever you do, we want you to do two things. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Go to This Day in History. Pop down the menu. Listen to our hour on Henry Ford, particularly his early life and the building of that first plant. It's fascinating. And then if and when you can, get to the National Museum, uh, the World War II Museum in New Orleans. Uh, It is one of the great experiences you and your family will have You'll visit a great American city, you will eat well, you'll listen to some great music, you'll see some great sights, but my goodness, the day and a half or two that you spend in this museum will move you, it will educate you, and please, the National World War II Museum, I've been there several times, and I like to go once a year, it's that meaningful to me and my family. Again, this is Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is our American Stories, and on this show we like to profile people from all walks of life. From titans of industry, musicians, philanthropists, politicians, athletes, and soldiers, you name it. We also like to talk with everyday honest and hardworking Americans to get a snapshot of their life and time without all the frills and sensationalist noise that we see and hear all too often on TV and on the radio. Today we bring you the story of Brock Smith a successful small business owner who lives here in the town we broadcast from Oxford, Mississippi. Brock owns and operates several antique stores throughout the area and also makes money buying, selling and trading arrowheads. Brock came by the studios recently and sat down with our own Jesse Edwards to share his story.
3: Brock Smith. I was born actually in Memphis, Tennessee, but lived in uh, Tupelo, Mississippi, most of my life up through high school. Um, and now I live in Oxford. I've been here for about the past, about 15 years.
4: Uh-huh. So. What your, who are your parents?
3: Uh, my parents, uh, Nelda Horton. Uh-huh. Um, my dad is Jerry Smith. He's been an Oxford residence uh, for, I guess, most of his life. So,
4: What, what does they do?
3: Uh, my mom, she's actually an interior decorator. And my dad was a factory worker for most of his life. So nice. he was also in the National Guard. Um, I guess it was the first Gulf War, he was active for that. Um,
4: and you, did you grow up around the Memphis area?
3: No, actually, that was just, I think back then, that was the the best hospital to go to, uh-huh. <laughs> to have a baby. So um, really just went up there. And when I was born, they, they moved back to Oxford. So uh-huh.
4: so you, you grew up in Oxford area, pretty much?
3: Yeah, my, my parents actually divorced when I was young. And uh, so my mom moved to Tupelo, and my dad stayed in Oxford. So I spent about equal time in both places. Yeah.
4: So, Did you ever have any uh, stepdads or anything like that growing up?
3: Stepdad, my mom remarried when I was uh, probably about seven. Uh, his name is Tim Horton, and mm-hmm. he's the one that lived in Tupelo, so his his family grew up there uh, and was pretty much there all his life. Yeah.
4: So. Did you have your your father was in your life at all? Or did Oh you yeah. Kinda, yeah, yeah,
3: he was uh, he pretty much got me every weekend. Mm-hmm. I would come over here to Oxford and uh, you know, we'd spend time traveling and doing outdoor stuff, so mm-hmm. uh, he was, you know, pretty much equal time with my dad and mom.
4: Yeah. What was uh, going up through uh, high school like for you?
3: It was, uh, you know, it was a good high school. Tupelo was a good good school. Uh, it was, you know, having divorced parents was socially a little different because, uh, you know, most of the time on the weekends I came to Oxford, so mm-hmm. uh, didn't really hang out with friends as much on the weekends as a lot of people did, but it was kind of good. Gave me some you know varied experiences, and uh, you know got to see two different towns growing up, which was kind of cool. So,
4: did you ever get to get out of the state when you were younger and go see uh, any any part of the country? Or uh,
3: a little bit um, when my dad was uh, training for the first Gulf War, um, he did training in uh, Texas in mm-hmm. Fort Hood. So uh, we had a little family trip where uh, I guess one of the local—I don't know if it was a local. Charity or something, but they they hired a tour bus and let all the family go out to visit uh, visit the the people that were training for the war. So mm-hmm. I got to go out there and hang around at Fort Hood for a little while, and we traveled around Texas and did some stuff there. Yeah, uh, and then we we would travel quite a bit to uh, Arkansas, I had some family there, and mostly surrounding states of Mississippi. So,
4: so did you did you go to college after high school?
3: I actually went to Mississippi State college for one year mm-hmm. and uh didn't really know what I wanted to do yet so um uh, had a buddy that was going into uh land surveying and he was mo- most of the people around here that go into land surveying get a two-year degree in mm-hmm. civil engineering so I transferred to northeast uh community college and got a two-year degree in civil engineering technology so for about 10 years after college I did land survey 10
4: years nice mm-hmm. what was your what was your very first job growing up
3: um, probably helping summers with my, uh, cousin from Arkansas. He had a fencing company and, uh, mm. helped him install some fences. Uh, so I guess that was really my first summer job. Yeah. Uh,
4: it's pretty hot out there putting in fence
3: posts. Pretty hot, especially in Mississippi. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> actually I also had another, my other first, I guess, technically job before that was, uh, I had a cameo appearance in uh, the gun and Betty Lou's handbag, that was filmed here in Oxford. Huh. So, <laughs> somebody was talking about that the other day. So,
4: so you got to be an extra? Or you got
3: to be an extra. And of course, when I was, I was probably maybe eight, nine years old when that happened. And of course I got a check for maybe 80 bucks. <laughs> so back then I thought that was a home run for yeah. standing in a, you know, street for a few minutes. So, Not bad. <laughs> yeah. That was pretty cool.
4: So, uh, you're, you're a small business owner now. Tell us about uh, what you do.
3: Uh, currently I own, um, uh, I actually have a partner, business partner, but we own three antique stores here in Oxford. We have the Depot Antique Mall, um Tommy's Antiques and the Depot Flea Market. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh sell all kinds of antiques, furniture, collectibles, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So
4: How how did you get into that from from going into uh from from, from being a uh, surveyor to to get into antiques and stuff like that?
3: Uh I guess it, it probably was uh, you know, just growing up I was always interested in history. A lot of the little weekend trips me and my dad would go on would be to, you know, Civil War battlefields and museums and that kind of thing. So I always had an interest in old stuff. Uh, And then, of course, getting into collecting Indian artifacts. uh, Just just anything old and historical was always interesting. So um, just kind of got a knack of being good at trading in it and, and, uh, you know, being able to know what stuff like that's worth and, you know, that kind of thing. I also enjoy retail because you get to meet meet different people and, uh, you know, help customers and that's, that's enjoyable.
4: Arrowheads.com, is that, is that your outfit or is that your partner's? Or yes, you my,
3: my partner owns that. I, I pretty much uh, help him with it and handle all the, anybody that has questions about artifacts or looking to sell artifact collections. Mm-hmm. Uh, I handle all the emails, appraisals, that kind of stuff with it.
0: This is Our American Stories and you're listening to the story of Brock Smith, a local business owner from Oxford, Mississippi. When we come back, We'll hear more from Brock about his life as we profile the stories of everyday, hardworking Americans right here on Our American Stories. Welcome back to Our American Stories. And by the way, to catch all of our work, go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Now we continue our interview with Brock Smith, a local business owner here in Oxford, Mississippi, as we continue our series on everyday Americans, where we cover who they are, where they come from, and what makes them tick. Here's Jesse Edwards.
4: So, yeah we say you know, artifacts we 're mostly talking about what most people would call arrowheads arrowhead right. collecting yeah mm-hmm. kind of a it 's a part of an American pastime that that a lot of people uh, might not know about uh, but uh, you you kind of got in a little a bit of a scuffle with some one of the, the university professors here not too long ago who was who, who was saying that basically uh, you shouldn 't be allowed to uh, to hunt for arrowheads and right. that they should they should be uh, preserved or kept you know in a, in a locker somewhere in the college away from people to see so they could be. Saved or something like that. So, well, what's your uh, what's your take on all that?
3: Yeah, that was uh, kind of interesting. It, it all started just from a local reporter that just happened to shop in one of our stores and, and saw my display of Indian uh-huh. arrowheads. And right. She just found them interesting and uh, asked to do a, an article on it for the paper. And um, so, after she did the article, that's when the I guess the the university folks uh, read the article and sent, sent a letter to the editor you know, basically saying what you just said, that people shouldn't be able to collect them, and uh, we're kind of kind of rude about it. Yeah. <laughs> Most arrowheads that are found by people and collected by people have virtually zero archaeological value. They're found out of context. They've either eroded, you know, through building highways or, um, you know, farming practices. So they're, it's not like they have a, you know, a great amount of knowledge that could be gained from them other than just, you know, what they look like and mm-hmm. the general area they were found so
4: myself and my kids have become interested in it and go, we go out and we look for them and we haven't had any luck but maybe finding little pieces and, and bits and shards here and there but uh it, it's kind of a it's a fun family activity and it's uh it's kind of strange that anybody would have a problem with it what are, what are some of the laws that are actually in place what is the legality for going out and, and just looking for some arrowheads and taking them home if you do find them
3: yeah um most most states you know as long as you're finding it on private property you know mm-hmm. you're allowed to hunt as long as you're not finding items that are that are associated with burials so i mean if you start finding human remains obviously you should call an archaeologist but uh most most artifacts you find are just surface finds and they're it's as long as you're doing it on private property with permission um there's no problem at all with buying yeah. finding them buying them trading them if you you know choose to do so there was a big big deal with the Florida collectors, and they actually had a undercover sting that they did, uh, had game wardens uh, kind of infiltrate the collectors and trick them into, you know, saying, because in Florida for years, you, it was legal to find artifacts in navigable rivers and collect them, mm-hmm. but they changed their laws saying that if you find an item in a navigable waterway, it's considered state property. Right. So if you pick that item up and then sell it, you're selling stolen property, and uh they use that to to get a lot of guys in trouble over it
4: so there uh, there are people in jail right now for for finding arrowheads taking them home and uh luckily in some states
3: l- yeah luckily most of the guys i believe got off with you know pretty hefty fines and probations but but one person actually committed suicide over the deal that, oh, that was afraid of the looming federal charges and uh yeah. you know so it it really it really caused a lot of problems that was really unnecessary it's all over items that had Zero archaeological value other than, you know, just what they look like. It's a great, great way to learn about history. It's a great physical, outdoor pastime that people should encourage young folks to do. And, you know, like, you know, we kind of, when we had the uh, the round with the university folks, you know, they proclaimed that they have a huge collection of arrowheads, but they're not on display. You yeah, know? nobody's like, ever seen them. Man. Right. Um, you know, I would much rather have a kid with a little frame of arrowheads like I was growing up that... Jumped at any chance to show them to their friends and yeah, uh, you yeah. know study about them and learn learn more about the the ancient cultures that were here before we arrived. Yeah, so. the way I personally see it, and a lot of people you know agree with me that collect artifacts. Um, you know, they don't see it as a as a as they're hoarding or, or looking for them just to you know for the monetary gain. That they almost see it as as they're rescuing the arrowhead. If if you leave it laying there long enough in a field or along a roadway that's been cleared it's going to eventually get destroyed or or possibly you know just lost forever due to silt or erosion uh so it's it it's not like you're you're taking it as a way to to destroy it you know you're you're preserving it and sharing it with other people and again you know most arrowheads are extremely common it would be like civil war bullets at gettysburg Mm. you know each bullet yeah it's a it's an artifact it's a piece of history but it's you know, you won't see a museum trying to display every, you know, mini ball that was fired in the Civil War. So right. it's it's a it's an interesting item, but also a very common one. Uh, there's a, a Native American uh, musician. He he had that. You know, said they were kind of like a, a spent shotgun shell. He <laughs> said, you know, a, an Indian wouldn't have put a whole lot of worth into a, in an arrowhead and made as big a deal about it as as modern people sometimes do uh same way up uh, in Vietnam there are probably a few billion you know M16 empty shells laying there that technically are an artifact <laughs> but you know nobody's going to try to hoard every single one of
4: them. Tell us about uh your hunting uh do you, have you ever had any luck uh going out and, and finding some pieces uh, on your own?
3: Yeah that's um that's kind of what got me interested in uh actually the first arrowhead I had my dad gave it to me then he had found it when he was a kid and um you know that that thing just fascinated me so much that I, I wanted to, to find some more of them, and used to go and look around at flea markets and yard sales, and you'd find one occasionally, but, you know, eventually I decided I wanted to get into looking for them, and uh, we used to hunt mainly in Lafayette County, and uh, it took me about a year of, of hunting to find my first perfect whole arrowhead, and uh, that was a heck of a find for me, you know, and it wasn't, you know, anything just spectacular, but you know, as a first find mm-hmm. for me, it was it was really neat to find it, and of course that led to the obsession of you know many hours of hunting, and I've probably found you know several hundred pieces like that over the years since. Mm-hmm. Um, what's so, been
4: what's been your what's been your, your best piece you found?
3: Um, probably my best piece was a large uh, type of point called a Stillwell point, and it was about a four inch uh, spear point, and it would be in the Archaic period, which would be Six to eight thousand years old, hmm. so uh, pretty nice piece, and it was perfect and a good sized one, so that was a nice find. And then, um, found a couple of uh banner stones, which were pretty neat find, and that's kind of an interesting item because nobody knows really what the the purpose was for that item. And
4: just uh, what do they look like? Just so the listeners that, that might not know,
3: um, usually they're a you know, they're a piece of stone, and they're they range from as small as a couple inches and to as large as seven or eight inches for a big one. But um, they're usually made out of either uh, quartz or uh, sometimes slate. It uh, can also be made of a, a red clay stone here in Mississippi is what you usually find. Um, but they'll have a hole drilled completely through them. And just from the diameter of the hole and from the wear patterns, that you can tell the hole was formed by cane drilling, which they would take a piece of river cane and use some type of abrasive like flint chips or sand to to get the, the hole in it. But nobody really knows for sure the purpose of putting that hole in there. Uh, archaeologists, a lot, lot of them think that they were uh weight for an atlatl, which is a spear-throwing device, uh, but there's also a lot of evidence that kind of leans away from that theory. So uh, a lot of debate over what that item was used for, but they're pretty rare and hard to find, so...
4: Uh, I like the uh, I like the idea that your your dad gave you your first arrowhead and that I mean it basically spurred you on to become obsessed with historical pieces and then go on to form part of your career. Yeah. Later yeah. on.
3: Mhm. And he you know he found his arrowhead just he was uh his family grew up in Waterford, Mississippi, which is just north of Oxford and uh they were cotton farmers, you know, uh sharecroppers, so uh he would he would work a lot of time in the fields in the summers uh picking cotton. Uh chopping cotton. So that's where he found his So, hmm.
4: What are some of the challenges that you, you face as a small business owner in, in 2016?
3: Um, it's fairly smooth. There's a, there's a lot of little things that, that, uh, you know, personnel is always, uh, a thing that's, that's tough to manage, uh, if you have multiple employees, hmm. um, and then the, uh, the red tape with taxes and, and keep it up with all that kind of stuff, the accounting, um, uh, and then in Oxford, it's it's kind of tough. Just uh, real estate rental, you know, those kind of things are kind of high in yeah. Oxford. So, um, you know, just making it work monetarily is can be a challenge. Um, but if if it's like myself, if it's something you enjoy, it's it's not really like work. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's. Uh, It's a lot of hours, and and if you added up the hours you do when you own a business, you probably don't come out at a very good hourly rate, but if you enjoy it, you know, it's worth doing for sure.
0: And there you have it, the story of Brock Smith, a local business owner from the town we broadcast from, Oxford, Mississippi, home of Ole Miss. We like to share stories from people from all walks of life because here at Our American Stories, we believe that everyone has a story to tell. If you would like to share your story with us or know someone who has a story to tell, you can always reach out to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Or you can drop us a line and leave a message at 844-627-8255. That's 844-627-8255. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're joined now by a regular contributor to the show we just love, a guy named Mark Yost. He's a Wall Street Journal contributor, author of the Rick Crane Noir series, and a firefighter and paramedic in the Chicago area. Mark, thanks so much for joining us.
5: Thanks for having me, Lee.
0: You know, Mark, in the past, we've talked about firefighters who've lost their lives. We've talked about the World War II Museum's New Road to Tokyo exhibit, which, by the way, I went through last week, Mark. And by the time I watched that mushroom cloud go up in that last final panel, I was crying so hard that I, I was disoriented when I walked out into the daylight of the streets of New Orleans. Um, so thanks for, thanks for putting me and my audience on to that exhibit, Mark. It's much appreciated. Well, thank you. You bet. And now, from your article, The Yoast Baseball Pilgrimage in Stay Thirsty Magazine, we were just, well, we were floored by this. And I want to read something, then let's start our conversation It starts, my son George and I will have visited 26 of the Major League Baseball's 30 ballparks. Our goal started when he was about eight years old, and that was to visit them all by the time he graduated high school. He's 17 and entering his senior year, barring some disaster, we should complete our quest next spring. Mark, what was up when you thought about this? And, well, just in general, what's it done for your relationship with your son even before we start?
5: Oh, well, it's, uh, um, you know, to, 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 uh, it's it's been great for us because it's been a touchstone for us. And really, it kind of started by accident. I mean, we live in Chicago. I'm originally from New York. We would drive home during the summer to see my family, and we just started stopping off at ballparks. We started going to Detroit, Cincinnati, Cleveland, and before we knew it, we had 10 or 12 under our belt, and um, I said to George, I said, hey, you know, we, we both love baseball. It, it's kind of the thing we like doing together. I said, why don't we see if we can go to every ballpark uh, by the time you graduate from high school? And he said, sure. And, uh, and um, you know, a couple of years and a couple of thousand dollars later, uh, here we are uh, uh, four shy of our goal. And um, we sort of have this year mapped out uh, in terms of, of completing the last four.
0: Well, that's great. Now I'm going to do a little reading. We're going to talk about some of the parks you visited, some of the memories. And by the way, we love to get folks to talk about their trips. My dad took me on Civil War Civil War battlefield trips, ending all the way down in the state I now live in, uh, Mississippi, because, well, you have to go all the way down south to the very base of Mississippi to, to, to experience all the great Civil War battlefields. And then, of course, I visited almost every major basketball arena with my dad. Uh, let Let me read something from your book, Mark. Our first stop was the old Yankee Stadium. I'd grown up going there as a kid. For most of my friends, those childhood memories are still our fondest and most cherished. So I wanted George to have some of those experiences and memories, too. Coming up out of the subway tunnel on the 4 train and suddenly seeing that monument of sports architecture rise up on the left side of the train, meeting friends at the Bat, a 100-foot-tall replica outside the stadium, eating the dirty water dogs that were sold at the old Yankee Stadium, By special dispensation from the New York City Health Department. Wow, Mark, what has all this meant to you as it relates to your own childhood?
5: Well, it's funny because, um, as I say further on in the argument, in the article, that, um, you know, I shared some of my childhood memories and my childhood experiences with George, but through all this, I mean, these have become his own memories in his own unique way. So, um, he's, he's gone to Yankee. We've been to Yankee Stadium dozens of times and, uh, all with my friends from New York who still live there. And, uh, so he's created a special bond with my friends who I grew up with, a, a good friend of mine, Angelo, and, uh, my cousin, Nino. And, um, it, it's, it, and so we've been to both. He knew what the old stadium was like. He, he's here to, heard us tell dozens of stories about going to the games in the 70s and, um, and now uh, we went to the opening season of the new Yankee Stadium, and so that kind of started a new chapter for us. And uh, I think I say in the article that when this is all done, um, we'll actually have gone to 32 stadiums because uh, we've been to both Yankee Stadiums and then we've been to both Target Field, which is the new Twins Stadium, as well as the Metrodome, which is where they used to play.
0: You know, there's something special about baseball as a sport to watch because unlike football where the the pace is fast or basketball, baseball allows for lots of conversation. Uh, It's the sounds, it's the silences, it's the pace. It's just a place where you can just relax and enjoy a very nice long day. It also happens in the spring and summertime. Uh, So talk a little bit about just this sport and what is it about this sport that lends itself probably more to passages like this than others.
5: Well, it's, as you as you say, it's a, it's a slower game. It's much slower than the NFL, and there's lots of time to talk. And, you know, it's, it's sort of like fishing. When you go fishing with your kids, it's really not about fishing. It's about spending time together and creating these memories. Um, sort of the one unique thing, very unique, that George and I do is that we keep score. And, um, in fact, I have. All of our ticket stubs, all of our scorecards from all the games we've been to, and it's amazing. People look at us like you know we're we're doing math on an abacus or something. (laughs) Right. We we were at a Red Sox game, and some guy leaned over and he goes, "Are you are you the scorekeeper for the Red Sox?" (laughs) I (laughs) said, "No, we're just watching the game." But you know, it started out as a way to keep George interested when he was younger, when he was seven, eight, nine and, and sort of keep them interested in the game because one of the things that bothers me as sort of a baseball purist is now at the baseball park, there are all these other things that they use to keep kids distracted um, instead of keeping them focused on the game. Yep. And I understand some of that, especially smaller kids. But um, so so George and I keep score together, and it's it's kind of a joke. And we, we actually have some scorecards from some near-no-hitters and, and that sort of thing. So, uh it's, that, that's kind of been the touch point for us.
0: Well, that's great. And that scorecard actually becomes a great teaching instrument, too. It's not only having him focus, but he's learning a lot about the game by, by, by executing on that scorecard. You talk a bit about, Mark, uh, the top ballparks. And I've been to a bunch. I lived right near Camden Yards and I was never a big baseball guy until periodically friends would just say, Hey, come on over to Camden Yards. Let's kill some time, have a couple of beers. And I just sure. fell in love with it. I, and I would walk because I lived in Fells Point, which was not far. So talk about, sure. just give me your, for now, your your top park, and then let's walk down some of the features of some of the other great parks. But of all the parks, what's the top park and why?
5: Well, obviously, uh, Yankee Stadium will have a, is a sentimental favorite for us, um, but We really don't like the new stadium because it's so much about the corporate boxes and the luxury suites, and and everything is so expensive at the new Yankee Stadium. Uh, One of our top parks is um, PNC Park in Pittsburgh. It's just a great old school retro park, just like uh, a lot, a lot like Camden Yards. Um, at Pittsburgh has a wonderful skyline. You know, one of the things that disappointed us when we went to San Francisco and we liked the San Francisco, uh, AT&T park, but the interesting thing is that in Pittsburgh, the out, you're oriented. So you're looking past center field to the skyline yep. in San Francisco, they oriented it towards the bay. And and San Francisco is another iconic skyline, and it just doesn't make sense to me as to why they decided to orient it that way. But uh, so we we I would say PNC is high on our list. Um, we've also really I, I'm a big fan of Dodger Stadium. George thought it was a little bit too old, um, and we also like San Diego. San Diego is one of the most family friendly parks. Um, in the country, I almost dropped dead. I went to the, cons- to the uh, souvenir stand to get a scorecard. The woman just handed it to me and I said, How much? And she said, Oh, they're free. Um, but then again, I doubt they give very many of them away.
0: Well, that's true. But, we're, uh, we're talking to Mark Yost. And when we come back, we're going to talk about that Yost baseball pilgrimage, more favorite parks, favorite stories, what he learned about his own country, and most important, because we're always wondering about this, the best food. What was the best food? Which stadium had the best grub, the best beer? This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And you can hear all this if you're traveling on our website, ouramericannetwork.org. More after this with Mark Yost. Habib and this is our American stories and you're listening to the song that made Billy Joel an international star. You knew the song from the opening chord progressions, just like great guitarists catch you with a hook. The way Keith Richards did, Elton John and Billy Joel knew how to do that with a keyboard. That's why they were who they were. And this is our best of special 1 hour. We like to dip back and look at some of our best of the past And one of our favorites was Billy Joel's Masterclass at the University of Pennsylvania, where he was teaching a bunch of students, 2,000 of them and fans, the craft of songwriting and the business of the music business. During a question and answer period, one young lady asked, because she has a little girl, how did the song Lullaby come to be? Take it from here.
2: All right, so I had
6: this, this melody. Which is how I write. Song I, I wrote the music first. She goes, Daddy, what happens when you die? So I said, Oh man, Whew. okay. And I told her what I really believed, and what I really believe is, what happens when you die is you go into other people's hearts. That you never really go away. You go into the rest of. The people that you knew, you go into the rest of their lives. They they take them with you. So, uh, but also this was during a time when her mom and I were splitting up. So this was like a double pronged thing. Like, daddy, are you going to leave me? And I said, I'll never leave you. I'll I'll ne- I will never leave you. i will i will never leave you i will never go away. I will never, never, ever leave you. So um, it, it was it was a tough answer, you know, in, in both respects. So I'm trying to remember when, when
0: I was writing. In. So he struggles a little bit more, and he's actually tearing up. You can tell that this is a really hard song for him to sing, and this is the thing about music in the end and a story. And think about this. He's, he's really trying to solve a problem. That's what brings him to this song. So let's go a little bit further down in this masterclass. Here's Billy Joel again. Uh, ¶¶
6: Questions for another day I think I know what you've been asking me I think you know what I've been trying to say I promised I would never leave you And you should always know
0: And there you have it, Billy Joel answering his little girl's question with a song. He continues through the second verse. And as he gets through the end, he has almost a breakdown. He starts to cry. He starts to pull away from the microphone. It's so emotional. It's so intimate. He never gives this explanation of the song when he's at Madison Square Garden. But here it's just him, a keyboard and a couple of thousand people. Well, he comes back to the keyboards and shares the stunning final verse of this song, again, for his little girl.
6: Good night, my angel, now it's time to dream And dream how wonderful your life will be Someday your child may cry And if you sing this lullaby
0: Master song, a master songwriter, shifting it to the future. The little girl singing this lullaby to her little girl. That's what art can do. Take us across time, across generations, race, class, ethnicity. This is Lee Habib, our American stories. Billy Joel's story to his little girl, his little girl's story to her little girl. More after this. And from art to history... Here is our piece on the life of Alexander Hamilton, which, by the way, is now art itself on Broadway. Take a listen. He was an immigrant to the United States, one of the seven foreign-born signers of the Constitution, something we don't often hear about. He was aide-to-camp to to then-General George Washington, the nation's first Treasury Secretary, the founder of the Federalist Party, our nation's financial system, the United States Coast Guard, and the New York Post. Not bad for one life. Hamilton was a prolific author, including 51 of the 85 essays that formed the Federalist Papers. And he is one of only three non-presidents to have his face on American currency. Sacagawea on the $1 coin, Hamilton on the $10 bill, and Ben Franklin on the 100 In 2004, author Ron Chernow published the definitive biography of his life titled Alexander Hamilton. And on this day that Hamilton was born, we take you to select portions of a talk Chernow gave about his book to the New York Historical Society. Chernow started things out, like all good stories, at the beginning of Alexander Hamilton's life.
2: He was an illegitimate boy born on the British island of Nevis. He had suffered through a series of childhood traumas that would have shattered a lesser figure. His father abandons the family when Alexander is 11. Mother dies of tropical fever when he's 13. He's then farmed out to a first cousin who commits suicide years later. Calamities of biblical
0: proportions seem to find their way to this young man. I had a friend of mine once how Hal- Alexander Hamilton's childhood thus. He had more sad stories than the Old Testament, and he did. And as Chernow described, my goodness. Father abandons family at 11. Mother dies of tropical fever at 13. Farmed out to a first cousin who commits suicide. You can't make this stuff up. It's so bad. Despite the traumas, he's a precocious young man. In
2: 1772, in other words, about a year before the Boston Tea Party, a monster hurricane lashes St. Croix And this self-taught prodigy sits down and he pens a description of the hurricane of such precocious force and eloquence that the local merchants, recognizing this wonder in their midst, band together to finance his education in North America. The wunderkind studied at King's College in Lower Manhattan, later renamed Columbia, King's being a slightly awkward and inconvenient name after the revolution. And already as undergraduate extraordinaire, Hamilton is publishing stirring pamphlets against the British. He takes up a musket and he drills with his fellow students in nearby St. Paul's Churchyard, today adjacent to Ground Zero, and he delivers spellbinding speeches to large crowds on what is today New York City Hall Park.
0: So you're getting to know just a little bit about the nature and character of this young man and overcoming obstacles, overcoming status, overcoming regional differences, this young man thrives. Hamilton Strange Studies, take a listen. Hamilton
2: also totes along six volumes of Plutarch's Lives, and he takes the empty pages of a military paybook, and we see him recording notes on foreign exchange, population growth, geography, even European rivers that he will never set eyes on. In fact, in his notes, very interesting notes called from Plutarch we see a young man who seems absolutely bewitched by the bizarre sexual practices of ancient Rome. For instance, Hamilton noted that in ancient Rome, young married women seemed to enjoy being whipped by lusty young noblemen. Why? Because they thought that it aided conception. I can tell you, when you study our founding fathers, you are led down all sorts of unexpected byways.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So true. And what's so wonderful about Chernoff's storytelling is that he humanizes the human. And anyone who gets through American history courses and finds them boring, it's not the history that's boring, folks. It's your teacher. It's your teacher. And regrettably, too many history teachers kill this otherwise unbelievable material. Plutarch. I mean, he's studying Plutarch. He's studying foreign exchanges. Who studies both of those things, let alone one? A kid who finds himself at Columbia University. Pretty unbelievable. Unbelievable. And it is pretty unbelievable. And this is Our American Stories, Billy Joel, Alexander Hamilton. And by the way, Alexander Hamilton's life, set to hip-hop, the hottest show in the world. In the world. There's now people being shamed in New York for not having seen Hamilton. Imagine that. This is Lee Habib. This is a best of of Our American Stories, our best stuff, made for you, just in case you missed it.